1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 28. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the words I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I'm, I'm the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those, who, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. But Christ indeed has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have, been, have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all the, 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 the dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who puts everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God.
Good morning, everyone. Uh, please uh, do take a seat. <clears throat> um, well, <clears throat> last Sunday, uh, we looked at verses 1 to 11. Uh, there, Paul urges us to build our lives on the firm foundation of the gospel. The gospel cornerstone that had already been laid into the fabric of human history. Now this morning, we will look at verses 12 to 28 as we consider the implications of this gospel uh, for our own uh, future. So, um, but before we do that, let us uh, pray. Let us bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you indeed for your word and the rich uh, treasure that it is. Open our hearts to hear your voice, our minds to rejoice in your truth, and our lives to be fragrant offerings to you. Amen. Amen. Well, the um, ancient Sanskrit text called the Katha Upanishad tells the story of a young boy called Nachiketas who died and met Yama, the god of death, in his kingdom. But when the boy arrived, Yama was not at home. So he um, had to wait three nights uh, for Yama. And when Yama returned, he felt very apologetic and promised to grant Nachiketa's three wishes. The first wish was that his dad wouldn't be angry with him. And Yama said, no problem, granted, son. Now ask your second wish. Nachiketa's asked, well, teach me how to do the fire sacrifice that leads to wisdom. Yama granted that as well. Now, what's your third wish? Nachiketas asked, Well, Yama, is there indeed life beyond death? Yama replied, Son, don't ask me this question. Even the gods don't know the answer. Ask me something else. But Nachiketas wouldn't give up. I only want to know the answer to this question. Nothing else surely matters. Yama said to him, Boy, choose wealth. Choose long life with sons, daughters, grandsons and granddaughters. Choose pleasures untold. But as for the question of life beyond death, I cannot answer it. Ask me another wish. Well, there are many beliefs and views about the afterlife. No one can be certain of what really happens after death. But one thing we can all be sure of is that death is the destiny of all mankind. It is universal. And it's always a one-way journey, isn't it? A journey that no one wants to make. 
but no one is exempt from. It is irreversible. However, events of the first Easter changed all that. Christ had made a return journey from death to life, not as a ghost, but with a new, gloriously physical body. This event didn't take place um, in any random place on earth, but in the land of Israel, among God's own covenant people. For Christ's disciples, this event meant and could only mean, in fact, that the new age of God's renewal of creation through his Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ, had truly begun. In Corinth, however, it proved hard for the gospel to shape the minds of Christians there. You know, if you see the verse 12, it says there, some of them claimed that there is no resurrection of the dead. They were in essence denying the future bodily resurrection of God's people. Perhaps uh, they were influenced by a uh, Greek idea that uh, the body was a kind of prison for the immortal soul. So why would you want resurrection? Or perhaps they thought it is foolishness. After all, you know, the phrase resurrection from the dead literally means the standing up of dead corpses. Well, in today's churches, and in fact, theological institutions across the world, you know, similar views against the resurrection are also being echoed and being sold as progressive modern thinking. But as we can see in verse 12, that it's been there for a long time. We should therefore not be surprised when we hear modern objections to the resurrection. Many today have a naturalistic bias against miracles. So resurrection would naturally be impossible by definition. While for others, they say, well, it doesn't matter. They can believe in the resurrection, even, in, even if, in fact, Jesus' resurrection never really happened in history. Because for them, the resurrection is merely a symbol. It's a symbol of hope in despair. 
How can that be? asked Paul. How can that be? You are undermining the firm foundation, the core gospel truth that was preached to you. So by denying the resurrection of the dead, the Corinthians were effectively cutting off their own lifeline. So Paul argues in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In fact, verses 15 and 16 repeat similar thought. Now, in order to help us to understand this passage, I think we ought to remember that the phrase resurrection of the dead refers to a specific, distinct future event. You know, it's not it's not merely uh, referring to a philosophical construct, a concept to be argued about. So what Paul is saying in these uh, verses suggests that the resurrection of the dead, that is the future resurrection of believers, has been coupled together with Christ's resurrection. These two events are tied up together with an unbreakable bond. One cannot occur without the other. So if the dead will not be raised, then it follows that Christ would not have been raised either. So you notice how in our future here is so bound up in God's promise in his uh, Messiah. A number of uh, passages in the Old Testament had clearly promised the resurrection of the dead for God's people. Um, usually, these passages are understood in the context of the arrival of the Messianic age. For example, uh, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, but your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. So for Paul, if Christians are not going to be resurrected, that means the new age of God's promise of renewal through his Christ had not in fact arrived, then the gospel that Paul had preached as the firm foundation cannot be true after all. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus 
the Christ could not have been raised either. Then we are excited for nothing. Let's all go home. It was just a false alarm. The consequences that follow if Christ had not been raised are catastrophic for both the apostles who preached the gospel and for the church who believed in the gospel. So for Paul and all the other witnesses to Christ's resurrection, which he listed at the start of this chapter, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then they have taken God's name in vain through being God's false witnesses. That's what it says in verse 15. That's serious. Um, that's against the, the Ten Commandments. And furthermore, if Christ was not raised, then verse 14 says, our preaching is useless. Useless here means empty. It contains nothing. And so if anyone believes in such an empty gospel, their faith would not lead to anything. It would be a thoroughly pointless act of faith that cannot save us. That's what Paul says in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, pointless, purposeless. You are still in your sins. Well, earlier in verse 3, if you remember, Paul already told us that Christ died for our sins. And his rising from the dead, therefore, would be a real vindication of the efficacy of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. So that is why in verse 17, Paul can say, if Christ was not raised, then you are still in your sins. Christ would have died for nothing. The old order of things still remains, where sin would still be unatoned for, unforgiven. And with sin comes death. So in such a scenario, Christians who have died are gone, lost forever. That's what he says in verse 18. And Paul admits in verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, which means that death is the end, Finito. We are of all people most to be pitied. You see, the Christian in that case lives a tragic existence. In reality, he has no hope 
of life beyond death. He's still in sin after all. His destiny is death. But he's managed to deceive himself in this life. And even with both eyes wide open, endured ridicule, pressure to conform, being cancelled by our woke culture, suffering hardships, and even persecution and death for a faith that's ultimately powerless to save him from sin and death. So if death ultimately wins over the Christian, then the Christian is no different to everyone else on planet Earth who has to make that final one-way journey. So why put your faith in Christ? Live however you want. Seek pleasures, money, and worldly happiness. Because ultimately, death will always win. He has a 100% kill rate. Like John Wick, I understand. So, in that case, where is the Christian hope? Well, thankfully, Paul changes gear in verse 20. Let's have a look at that. He says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. You know, this is the, the cheers moment, you know, in this passage. Cheers! Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. So in previous verses, Paul had only engaged us in a hypothetical argument. But in reality, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And so it follows that we too can expect to be raised to life after we have died. If you remember how these two events are tied up together with an unbreakable bond. In effect, you know, verse 20 is the logical reverse of, say, verse 13. Because Christ is risen, so we will be risen with him. Christ's resurrection means our resurrection too. Now, Paul uses in verse 20 the first fruits analogy. In fact, in verse 20, he uses that. And in verse 23 as well, the first fruits. It's an agricultural language. It means the first produce of a harvest, indicating that much 
much more is to come. So if the resurrection of the dead is the harvest, then Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of that harvest. So Christ's resurrection is the beginning and indeed the model of that glorious future event of the so-called resurrection of the dead for all who belong to Christ. You know, this, this bond, this superglue bond between Christ's resurrection and ours, in fact, has been written down into the very fabric of God's master plan to save his creation from the effects of sin and death that Adam brought into the world. So that's the point of Adam and Christ's contrast that uh, you can see in verses 21 and 22. Through one man, Adam, came death. And death needs no further proof, right? We all know its reality. We all live trying to avoid it as long as we can. And so in a similar way, through one man, Christ, the reverse of death will take place called life. So the Christian hope, therefore properly understood, is not for a good death or for a life after death, but for the reversal of death also known as the resurrection. Okay then, Paul, you may ask, so how come I'm not seeing resurrection of the dead today? I thought Christ is risen. So how come I'm still experiencing illness, aging, and decay of my body? Well, you know, just because our resurrection is absolutely secure in Christ's resurrection, it doesn't mean that it must happen right now. Today, in God's providence, is a time of waiting, of ripening of God's harvest field, of the preaching of the gospel of salvation to all. And then the resurrection of the dead will happen when Jesus returns in glory. And that's the point of verse 23. Paul says the resurrection will take place in turn. Each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, 
that is at Jesus' second coming, those who belong to him. Yeah, now is the time of waiting. Yes, many believers, including us, may well die before Christ returns the second time. But don't fear. Death will not be the end of us. In fact, verse 20, if you notice, states that death is simply being asleep. So just as you can expect to wake up from your sleep the next morning, so will it be when the day of our resurrection comes. But what can help us in our often difficult journey, perilous journey through this life, you know, is a broader perspective, a broader context, like a big, big map. So imagine that, you know, you're walking in the countryside, hungry, cold, desperate to get to your destination for lunch. It's a pub called the Red Lion. And you think you know where you are. <laughs> but it's not that easy, is it? From experience, it's really difficult. There are many, first of all, Red Lion pubs. And the countryside is huge. There are so many routes that you can take. Your Google map doesn't work. And perhaps you are desperate for the loo too. Now the Christian's life journey is a bit like that. What we need to help us keep going is a much bigger perspective. Something far bigger than me and my little world and my vision, all the things that I just can see around me. You know, we need something like those helpful location maps in the tube stations, if you know what I mean, uh, or on the street corners for tourists. Uh, it tells you, you are here, right? And this is then the route that you can take to get to your destination. And not only that, here are the landmarks you can expect to see along the way. Now, Paul, only the Apostle Paul can do this, in just five short verses, from verses 23 to 28, he's doing just that for us. So in verse 23, we can expect the second coming of Christ. That is the next big event in God's salvation plan. You know, Paul says it in such a matter-of-fact way, doesn't he? When he comes. When he comes. And then next, at his coming, in verse 23 also, we can expect our own resurrection from the dead. 
But if you think that's the end of the story, well, that's not at all the end of the story, is it? It turns out the resurrection of the dead is not the final destination of God's people. In fact, we will find that it's only the beginning of God's renewal of his good creation, that sin and its effects had spoiled for so long. So that's why in verses 24 and 25, we will see Jesus, the righteous king, as judge. He will purge creation from sin, from all dominion, authority, and power that reject God's righteous rule in the first place. Christ will ultimately subdue all his enemies and crush them under his feet. Verse 25. And that's a picture of total and complete victory. And then, verse 26, last of all, Jesus will destroy death completely from God's good creation. Isn't that amazing? It was never meant to be there. In fact, it's described as the last enemy to be destroyed. God is the God of life and not death. And in this final act, we will see God abolishing death for good. Well, we started with the question of life after death. But friends, surely a time is coming when no one will understand this question. Because what is death? Death is dead. There is no death to speak of in God's renewed creation. The life of Christ. And now in verse 28, we'll see him finally revealed that this Christ who died, who rose again from the dead, is the Son of God. He's the second person of the Godhead who has triumphed finally once and for all over sin and death. And then the Son will sit at the Father's right hand with a renewed creation filled with the glory and the peace of God. So then, friends, as we close, what does Easter mean for you? I think these verses tell us, choose life. And keep choosing life when it is hard going. God 
only has one grand master plan of salvation through his Son, Jesus Christ. There are no other plans, and no other plans will lead us to life. No other plans are so anchored, isn't it, in this immovable cornerstone of the gospel of Jesus, who actually died and who actually rose again. So let's re-examine our assumptions and prejudices, allowing the gospel truth to reconfigure our minds, our thinking, so that we can build our reasoning based on the solid premise of the gospel and not the other way around, you see, as the Corinthians had done. We know that in Christ, we are on the right track. If we get lost in the dark alleys, the back streets, the fears and anxieties of living in this uncertain world, let's continue to encourage one another to choose life, to choose Christ, to choose the certainty of the resurrection hope. If Christ can reverse and destroy death, we should trust him to take care of the rest, to take care of the rest of our lives, fears, and mistakes also. Well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, all glory be to you. You are indeed the resurrection and the life, our hope and our future. And so we worship you this day and we worship you with our lives. Amen.